Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. Here we are. Are we on part? Is this part four? Part five? What are we doing? Five, I think. I think it is five. And it's the five hindrances, right? So here we are back for Buddhism for Beginners using the uh, 12-part presentations, uh, lectures by uh, Jack Cornfield, And Today, we're going to talk about the five hindrances. I had a ton of fun last week having this conversation. And today, as I was listening again, I think it's a fourth or fifth time now through Jack's material, um, listening to this episode five, there were a lot of pieces and parts that reminded me of our conversation last week, this whole idea of sitting with these disturbances. And I shot over to you guys a podcast that I just got a chance to listen to that some friends sent me. And uh, it was one of these ones that it lasted 45 minutes. It was, a, I think it was called Tame the Whoosh. And it was this idea that these disturbances in us, that there's a there's a process by which you can sit with them in a healthy way without uh, disrupting other people and be able to kind of sit with it. As you say, Jana, get curious about it, uh, get us all kind of just sitting with those things, thinking about them. And eventually they go away anyway, because life moves on. Um, and in that conversation, it was a 45-minute podcast. And my wife and I sat for three hours, pausing, talking, pausing, talking. And it was a lot of growth, I think, for the two of us this week. Um, we're back with Anthony Miller and Jana Spangler. Uh, let's get started. You guys have any opening thoughts before we get into the specific five hindrances? Your thoughts on whatever we've done behind us, as well as this material here and, and this idea of these things that get in the way of our awakening. Yeah, I I really love that he uh, referred to these five hindrances as entanglements. He used mm. he used the word mm. enta- five entanglements. He talked about difficulties and hindrances. Um, a lot of times, I mean, we have to remember that these thoughts weren't developed in English, and so we have to work to come up with words to try to express, you know, where these things, what they're trying to communicate, where they're. Uh, uh, originated, and he talks about grasping desire and wanting and aversion, anger and fear and sloth and sleeplessness, restlessness, worry and doubt. Like these are all things that that we experience in our lives, and uh, and they are definitely hindrances and entanglement. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I would just maybe say as an overview to this, because I think this is really important, good stuff. The, that is here in these hindrances. But just maybe as an overall way to view it, I think our Western minds, I know my Western mind (laughs) tends to want to go to, oh, well, if these are hindrances, I just need to eliminate them. And that's the goal. And um, that is not the goal. And I think it's something I have to continually remind myself, even as I work within these five and really think about them and how I apply them, is that the goal is not to eliminate them. The goal is to recognize them. And um, Jack even said at one point in this section, these hindrances are not the problem. They are the path to enlightenment. How else can we learn? And I just think that is so important as we talk about these particular ones, notice how your mind goes to, but how do I get rid of that? How do I stop doing that? How do I stop having hindrances? And um, yeah. it's a new it's a new view of the way we look at things because we're such problem solvers in the West. Um, we need to remember that that's not the goal here. The goal is not to name these things as evil, bad, terrible. They are the path to enlightenment. We just have to pay attention. Yeah, I love it. There, I had one of them this morning where a piece of data... I was made aware of a piece of data and that data, I didn't want it. I didn't want that data. And so my first thought is, let me let me figure out how I manipulate the world. 
And what I ended up doing was going, no, no, no. Let me just sit with this. Jana said, get curious about this stuff. Let me just sit here and poke at it, see what it does, see what see what happens here. And eventually it just went away on its own, right? Like it's, that was it. Let's move on. Life keeps going. It's the, the world in front of us keeps unfolding. Um, I do think these hindrances, yes, they are part of the path. They, in the moment when we uh, aren't aware, they distract us from being present and from being aware. Um, and hence, on the first half of life, they truly do block us from awakening. But as you guys are pointing out, recognizing them in the moment and sitting with it is the path to awakening. So it is it is this juxtaposition of these things that get in the way and these things that open up um, open up the, the place for growth. So with that, let's jump into the first one. I don't, I don't, he went through them um, and he gives them different words. And as I've gone out on the internet and tried to find like what everybody's labeling these, uh, I may work with different things here. So you guys may have to remind me what Jack calls them. Um, but let's start with the first one, which is uh, sensual desire. And I know somewhere else, uh, Wikipedia mentions it as sensory desire seeking for pleasure through the five senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and physical being or physical feeling. Sorry. Um, your thoughts on sensory or sensual uh, desire. Yeah. I think uh, one of the phrases that Jack used in this was the wanting mind. He also uses grasping, right? So um, it is just this, this idea or illusion that whatever we have is not enough that if we only could have something else, then I could be happy. I don't know how often I have thought that throughout my life about big things and then also about little things throughout my day. But, you know, I, I remember as early as high school, just I can't wait to graduate and get out, do do my thing in, in the world and go to college. Well, now that I'm in college, I can't wait till I'm done with that. Well, I can't wait till I have the perfect job. I can't wait till I'm married. I can't wait till I've kids. I mean, there was always something. I'm always moving the bar. And that is a form of this grasping or desire, like imagining that there's something more that if I could have it, um, whether it's an achievement or whether it's things, you know, if I could have the perfect house, if I could have the whatever to make my life easier, then I'll be happy. Um, that is a function of that. Um, or even just, you know, as soon as it's not so hot outside, then I can be happy as soon as whatever the condition is. Right. Um, so there's always this idea that something else that we do not have will make us more complete. And I, I, I think it's something that as humans, we fall into all the time. Yeah. I think, I think anyone who either has a natural tendency towards uh, perfectionism or loves a person who has a natural tendency towards perfectionism can appreciate this wanting mind that that if the, if I could just have this next thing, then I would feel satisfied, or then I would be happy. And then they have that thing happen, and then that's anticlimactic. And so they think, well, if I could just have this next thing after that, then I would. And and that that natural tendency to be a perfectionist, that natural tendency to have the wanting mind, makes it extremely difficult to be in the present. Because the present moment feels like a failure if you're measuring your sense of value and worth and your ability to have peace in your life based on things that haven't happened yet. Um, what I would say is even people who don't have a tendency towards perfectionism still may have this entanglement or hindrance of the wanting mind where uh, they get wrapped up in... Uh, 
happiness as being that they need something more to be happy. And and I think I think the the important part of this entanglement or hindrance is that there's value in wanting to stretch and grow and progress. Where the problem is is if if that entanglement or hindrance impedes our ability to be present and grateful and experience the present with a sense of peace and satisfaction while we continue to stretch and grow. Yeah. Like yeah, that. Jack talks about <clears throat> receiving those things with mindfulness. So this gets back to, you know, the ones we've talked about before with the mindfulness. But his point is that first the first step in any of this is just to notice it and accept that it is. Right? Accept that we have that desire in us, that that in and of itself is not wrong. Right. And, um, but then bring it into a mindful heart, receive it. Because, like you said, Anthony, I mean, just wanting something more to do better or to have goals is not in and of itself a hindrance. It's not a terrible thing in life. The question is, where is that coming from? And if it's coming from a deep awareness of our deep desires and we can get curious and ask it questions, we can recognize what desires are coming from um, this this lack or this imagined lack that we have and which ones are just the unfulfilled desires of a heart that is alive and wants to do more in the world. The energy for that comes from a very different place than hustling for what we need in order to be okay. And this is a, this is a skill or a practice of instead of having this entanglement happen and then we react to it and we're unsettled, and we don't have peace in our life, that instead, we we approach it with a sense of curiosity and mindfulness, we recognize what's happening, huh, what's the origin of that disturbance or entanglement or desire, or that sense of not being able to be present, and we increase our capacity to uh, engage with and learn from uh, this hindrance or entanglement. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it was in Cornfield's book, but somewhere along the way, somebody said it's the, and this will apply to all of them, but I'll bring it out here. It's, it's this idea that we treat the present as if it's already the past. And by, by worrying about how we're going to use this moment to get the next thing or to get it done or to get it away, you're constantly treating this moment as if it's already gone as if there's something else to get to. And and I, I I think the magic, you guys are pointing out, and we've done this now for several episodes, the magic really is in being present. I'm sitting with, you may have seen it on Facebook. My, my grandson comes over on Sunday and he's sitting on the couch and I'm reading him a... Uh, a book of uh, you know Mother Goose and that kind of stuff, and, and it was uh, a little Miss Muffet sat on the tuffet and eating her curds away. And I'm reading it to the kid, and I'm and I just adore this grandkid. And I'm just enjoying this moment. So I'm reading and looking at his eyes, and I'm watching his facial expressions, and I'm just soaking in every second of it. I was so present in the moment and so aware that here's this little kid who's learning new things every day. And here's a chance for me to take, you know, 10 minutes and impart something new to him. I don't know what he'll grab from this, but he'll grab something. And to watch the watch him with curiosity, uh, looking at the world and trying to figure out how things work. Um, okay, so with sensory, I mean, you, you, you know, if I could just get better sex, if I could just get more better food, if I could just get better music, if I could just, you know, what anything that fills the senses and we're constantly chasing the thing. And, you know, we've all had good sex, I hope. If we have, like, 
you know, three days later, I need good sex again. Like you can never catch it. Right. So there's this idea that whatever you're trying to do to chase filling the senses with excitement in the moment and to keep away that, which is negative, uh, you'll constantly be chasing your whole life. Not that there's anything bad with a good plate of Indian food. Um, but we ought to somehow figure out how to be happy with things as they are right this moment. And if we're not, we're missing the goodness of the thing that's right in front of us. I mean, that's, that's the thing. It, it, um, it brings us um, this dissatisfaction to, and we don't even notice what is right here. You know, um, I think I might've mentioned this before in one of the other episodes, but I love this idea from John Kabat-Zinn of if you're breathing, in the moment right now, there's more right with you than is wrong with you. So regardless of what's going on with your senses, um, there's always good in this moment. Yeah. In, in yeah. the other, in the other hindrances that we'll talk about, he, he refers to the role of fear. And uh, I think in this first hindrance or entanglement also that there is a fear component as well. Fear of missing out, you know, FOMO, mm-hmm. they call it today. Uh, or fear of not being good enough, or fear of not having enough, or fear of not being satisfied. Um, there's a role of fear. And that's why as we increase our mindfulness, we experience true freedom, uh, because we increase our capacity to live in the present and live without fear in our lives. The uh, the second one here is this idea of ill will, or anger, hatred, seeking retribution, trying to get revenge, um, and maybe just the act of being being upset and angry about the life you do have. Um, any thoughts here on ill will? Yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts on this one uh, because we live in a society that really uh, is very uncomfortable with a lot of things like anger, um, you know, uh, emotions that we might have that we've actually come by honestly. <laughs> And we tend to, to see them as coming from a bad source or, um, you know, showing that we've done something wrong if we are expressing any kind of a negative emotion. Um, so I think we have a lot of uh, practice in the West of making an enemy of these states. And I think we would look at that and go, of course, they're hindrances and we must, this is one of those that we're tempted to just, we must eliminate them. But there is so much uh, information, like at the heart of anger, for say, you know, um, Jim Finley, one of my, uh, the teachers at the living school who was very influential with me talked about anger and talked about how anger is not just rage or being out of control or anger is the truth. And if you sit with anger and you get down to the core of what it is informing you of, it is always informing you of something, of a deeper fear, of a, of a deeper frustration, of being mistreated, of someone you love being mistreated. There's always truth at the bottom of anger. And if we are asleep to that, we will miss it completely. And if through our Christian sensibilities, we are rushing toward forgiveness to get rid of it, it doesn't go away. It festers. It comes out sideways as passive aggressiveness or, you know ill treatment, irritability with people, it does not go away or it blows up at some point. There is such good information about how we need to care for ourselves, of what we need to get into deeper acceptance of, of what boundaries we might need to care for ourselves and others. Um, And we miss it completely if we try to push these things away. 
you have hit on something when you said at the base of fear, if you dig down far enough, sorry, anger, if you dig down far enough on anger, there is fear at the bottom of the hole and you're scared of something. You're, you're apprehensive of something. Um, beautiful point. Thanks for fleshing that out. Um, Anthony. Yeah. So he talks about aversion and he talks about judging. And I also would mention that as, as Jana has alluded in Western culture and in some Christian cultures, we have this idea that when we experience anger, that that's a negative emotion. And that's indicative that we're either not worthy or being unfaithful because we're not having the spirit of God with us or something like that. And so we try to spiritually bypass anger rather than get curious about its origin to experience it and learn it. And and Jack talks about, uh, he shares a quote about giving this entanglement or uh, giving anger, aversion, and so forth, um, respect without believing its story. So we experience this, we experience this disturbance, anger, aversion, judgment, rage, we get curious about it. We respect where we, we try to learn from it, but with the mindfulness without believing the story. And then he tells a story of judgment that I thought was really good. And I think it alludes in some ways to uh, what Steve Covey, Stephen Covey shares in terms of a paradigm shift, uh, in terms of the story he tells about some kids acting out with a father on a train. But in this story, um, there's a person standing in line in a grocery store, and in fr- he's in a hurry, and in front of him, there's this woman that's carrying this cute little baby. And this cute little baby and this woman start engaging with the checkout person in this grocery store line, and it's taking forever, and they're spending all this time, they're totally not aware of what's going on, and the person in line, the man in the line behind them is getting all upset, and he's judging how disrespectful and all this kind of stuff. And so in any event, eventually the woman and the baby go and he comes up to the line and speaks with the checkout person, the woman there, and and asks a question about that experience or makes an observation about what a beautiful baby was. And the woman explains that, yes, um, I think in the story, uh, she's a widow or a single mother. And it turns out that the baby is that woman's baby. And this incredibly thoughtful and kind thing of this woman that tends the baby uh, every now and then will bring in the baby so the woman can see her child. And it totally changes the experience and the paradigm of the man who was standing in the line who was raging and judging and all upset. And, And the message of the story is we really don't know. And so if we want to give these emotions or experiences respect without believing the story, we need to get curious about really where is the origin of it and what is it there and what is it about that's happening that we don't know because there's probably more to the story that we will totally miss if we react rather than with mindfulness, consider it and respond. Yeah. When you're angry, you're going to miss the details. Um, I know that Jack in this conversation mentions that anger maybe one of the easier hindrances to recognize. So some of us, I know me, I, I can kind of start to boil up inside. Like if anything happens, it throws, throws my day off, throws my, I, like I'm a generally happy person, but if somebody starts to come at me in any unhealthy way, or my world is getting too far out of sync of what I want it to be, um, I can feel feelings of anger come up for a little while. 
it's an easier one to notice. And so maybe for people out there who are listening to this, you're going like, I'm trying to implement this stuff into practice is as, um, ugly maybe as anger can be anger might be the easiest one to start with noticing. Yeah. Um, yeah. absolutely. Cause anger has an energy to it. Right. Which, which is also, it's, it can, it can make it problematic, but it's also its gift because it gives us the energy to do something. Right. Um, some of these other ones are harder to tell. I mean, I, I can't, um, one of the, one of the things that my practice has brought to my mind, maybe more than any other is, is falling into judgment. That's, that's harder to pinpoint when we're in judgment. Um, but I think the, the story that Anthony told is a key. It's a, it's a doorway into judgment is to, um, because I think most of us just accepting that we, our brains are wired for judgment. Our brains are wired to make distinctions between me and another um, and to make comparisons and to, to even understand the world that I live in based on that. It's, it's like the air we breathe to be judgmental. <laughs> and so um, maybe just recognizing that that is the case, but one of the ways that you can, you can kind of um, look for this in, in your life would be to notice how you are looking at other people, right? If we, one of the framings um, that I've heard from philosophy is having an I-thou relationship with someone rather than an I-it relationship. It's treating other people as objects. Mm. You know, in the story that Anthony told, that woman was an object. She was in his way. She was not a person. If we spend time actually thinking of other people with this deep respect of, you know, the the namaste of the divine in me sees the divine in you, you carry that, you start to notice your judgments more when you can say, okay, that person who is being a, a, a jerk in traffic and I'm yelling things at them all the time, if I can just take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, I don't know that person's story, make that person into a person rather than an object, um, how I treat them becomes completely different. And it doesn't even have to be a stranger. I mean, there are times when I treat my children as objects. You know, I'm ashamed to say that, but it's true. If they're in my way and I've got, I've, I'm on a mission to get something done, I can even treat my dearest family members as objects. So noticing the judgments that we have, noticing the agendas we have, um, noticing all of the, the angst that drives us. Um, sometimes that's harder to see. And most of the time when we, it's, it's very easy to just scapegoat the other person. When they when it shows up, yeah, I was. I think Thomas McConkie is the one that told me the story, but he, he told somebody did anyway that there were two monks and they had uh, they had taken a vow of celibacy, and that meant that they couldn't come in contact with a female. And it was raining that day. They get to the road, and there's a woman standing there, and the road is all like puddled up. There's nowhere for her to walk unless she gets her feet wet. So the one monk picks her up, takes her across the road, and sets her down. And the two monks go on their way. And the whole rest of the way back to the monastery, the other monk is going, I don't, I don't understand. I don't, I don't know why you broke the rule. I don't, I don't get it. And they get all the way back to the monastery. And the first monk tells him, he says, why don't you put her down? I put her down like two hours ago. Why don't you just set it down? Cause the whole time going back to the monastery, that's all this guy was, was angry and it was eating away at him and he wasn't being present. He didn't see the beautiful scenery. He didn't notice uh, the, the animals that were on the countryside. He, he missed out on so much. And in our anger, anger, we are missing out on the world in front of us. We're missing out on loving relationships. We're missing out on, on this beautiful planet. We're missing out on all kinds of things um, 
my suggestion is, is put her down. Like, let's get back to being present. Soon as you catch yourself, get back to being present. Here it is again, right here, right here, right here. All right. Next one. Um, apathy and laziness. Uh, Wikipedia talks about it being sloth or tapor, half-hearted action with little or no concentration. That sounds like me at about 7 a.m. when I first wake up flipping through Facebook. And I immediately in my brain go, I'm going to get up in five minutes, go make my coffee and get going on my day. And then 25 minutes later, I'm still flipping through Facebook trying to see what the cool post is. And let's be honest, none of them are really that cool right? Like none of them, not mine, not yours. They're not that cool. It's, it's not worth wasting our day. And there we are for such a long time in the morning doing that. At least I am thoughts on, on this half-hearted action. You're not the only one that does that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. This one, this one hits close to home for me. Um, I've always had this story. One of the things that really hit me because this is my story about myself. Um, Jack mentions laziness that it's often people will talk about, well, I'm just lazy. And he says, that's almost never the case. Almost always at the core of laziness is a fear of creativity, a fear of your own, um, maybe vulnerability. I don't know that he used that word, but I see it that way. It's your fear of being really vulnerable in action in the world. And that really struck deep to my heart because I have this story about myself that I'm lazy. You know, I can get sucked into a day of Netflix like no other if I don't have something scheduled. Um, And it's never fulfilling. Like it's at the end of the day, I haven't gotten anything out of that other than more ways to beat myself up. So, um, and then this label laziness just gets, gets stuck in my head and it, 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 it just, it's, it's, it can be really soul killing in really our self-concept, our worth. And we live in such a world of achievement, achieve, 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 move, move, move. And I come from a family like that. The story is if you're not moving, then, you know, you're, you're not worth anything. So I've internalized a lot of that. And so this was these, this section and the next of the restlessness. I mean, I just see the dichotomy. Just come to the Spangler household and you can see a whole lot of the sloth and the restlessness in action. Um, so this, this is a really important one, I think, to, for me. And I think for so many people, I see a lot of people in my coaching practice that, that um, have some of these same stories. <clears throat> but um, the ability to just sit still in that. And listen to what some of the inner dialogue is going on. Listen to what am I fearful of in this moment? What, what are the things that I'm avoiding? What, and why am I avoiding it? How do I get more and more curious about this piece of myself? And how have I deceived myself that just having more rest is going to fix things for me? I mean, I think that's the deception of a lot of these things, you know, just like the desire. Um, how am I imagining that if I could just do something different, this would this would change? Or if I just give into this moment of hiding from the world, that that will change things for me? Yeah, you, you made mention that we're maybe afraid of creating something. Mm-hmm. And someone once told me that uh, the moment of creation is always in the present. Like anytime anything was ever created, it was created in the present moment. And hence, I, I think in some ways those go together that, that we are avoiding. Um, and, and you're right. There's some fear, some, you know, whatever it is, my, my life isn't exciting or whatever, whatever stories we tell ourselves, we all have a thousand stories. 
wasting the day away allows us to ignore uh, maybe our own insecurity about the world. Hundred yeah, percent. I think that's that. There's something that really resonates in there for me, especially as a perfectionist, and I am a recovering perfectionist. I try, <laughs> I try and try and try, but there's something in there. Perfection, perfectionism is also the enemy of creati- creativity. So, any time that we're not willing to allow ourselves to be vulnerable to that new possibility, to possibly failing, to possibly making mistakes, I think that a lot of perfectionists can fall into this um, inaction. Just that really what is at the bottom of it is fear. Yeah. Yeah. So when I listened to this section and he talked about fear, that was a little bit stretching to me. And um, and it, it prompted me to get more curious and mindful about uh, getting easily distracted as well as he doesn't talk about, to my recollection, he doesn't talk about perfection or procrastination, but some of this hindrance or entanglement of the inability to be present and to engage in the present with creativity seems to also relate with procrastination. And I'm really good at that. Um, uh, the offset of procrastination is that maybe you have periods of time where you're extremely effective and focused, right? Um, but it's because you have a deadline that's, in, you know, a pending deadline or something like that. And then you get super focused and creative and so forth. But in all of those things, it is this hindrance to being able to be mindful and in the present. And so, you know, in a meditative practice and journaling and seeking to put in the work, this is definitely an area that, you know, that I would like to spend some more time with, with curiosity, again, to, to, um, to listen uh, to, to what's going on uh, without uh, reacting and uh, without having the, having to believe the story uh, that it's telling me, but just getting really curious about its origin and mindful about it. Love it. Love it. The uh, the next one is restlessness and worry, uh, the inability to calm the mind. Uh, anxiousness is another way I saw it. There seems to be some hint at fear here, right? Like worrying is always kind of rooted in fear. I know in the episode that Jack makes mention that fear is never about what is happening right now. It's always about what might happen. And, that, and, he, and he acknowledges that might or might not happen, but to waste energy on what might or might not happen seems like not a very good use of our time. Um, it's one thing if we're getting prepared, you know, to, to, to put wood boards on your house because the hurricane is coming. Um, sometimes this anxiousness leads us to something, but sometimes it paralyzes us. And I know I'm one for sure. This is my big hiccup out of the five. Anxiety makes me angry. If I start getting anxious, I start getting louder. I start getting sterner. I start uh, not being a very good listener. I'm only willing to kind of put out my view and argue that I'm right because I'm so anxious. I have a lot of anxiety around what will happen if I don't step in here and do something. Um, a- a- anxiety is a, a big hindrance uh, for me. And, and so this idea of uh, restlessness and worry, because it it does paralyze us. There's times where I have anxiety where I cannot, I'm a... Um, I'm a one track mind. I can, I can do a set of tasks, but I have to do one task at a time. And if I'm given three or four things, I just kind of fall apart and can't do any of them. And um, when I realize that I'm behind the gun, because it is this moment that just crept up on me, that's an emergency or um, suddenly somebody at work is putting multiple tasks on me. 
I suddenly can't get anything done. I'll go three or four hours not accomplishing anything because anxiety does paralyze me from being present and, and being productive. Uh, your guys' thoughts here on this restlessness and worry. Yeah. Um, so this is also a very natural part of being human, right? Our, our brains have evolved to be wired for threat. I mean, that's a very natural place to go. If we are not really mindful about this, it's amazing how quickly all of our fears and anxieties can become our reality. And now we're living in the, the pain and difficulty of what could happen when, you know, the vast majority of the things we imagine don't come to pass. We are just wired to think uh, that it's a worst case scenario in in every way, um, especially if we're not on really, really firm ground in a relationship or or with a situation in life. We it's 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 where we are naturally going to go. So, um, you know, I think that it's really important what what Jack said, and I heard you say this that you know the vast majority of what we what we exist in in this one is in our imagination. But he also talked a little bit about people who really just can't sit still. And um, I'm married to one of those. He's, he, we were, he was listening. He walked through the room while I was listening to this one. And, and he, he started listening to it. We both just kind of had to laugh because it was so much him. Like what, and I, I asked him the question, what would happen if you sat still? And he's just like, I don't know, but it makes me crazy to think about it. Like he just does not like to sit still. And somewhere it's almost like, I feel like we're Jack Spratt and his wife with, when it comes to this, you know, the, the sloth and the, and the restlessness um, where both of us are so not mindful about it. So often it can really cause problems, but the truth is there's wisdom in both positions. If we could just understand what is actually driving us, you know, there's, there's something that I could learn from his industry and there's something he could learn from my ability to sit still um, because in the stillness, mm. if we're mindful about it, if we're understanding what is happening it's where we learn the lessons. Otherwise, we're just on a hamster wheel. Mm, I like it. Yeah. When I, yeah. So um, a lot of times I hear mindfulness uh, from uh, therapists uh, or in behavioral therapy that seems to focus on this area of restlessness, anxiety, depression type thing, worry, and so forth. Um, and, and professionals who use practices of mindfulness to help individuals that have this disturbance or entanglement to, number one, recognize that the anxiety is often lying to them or catastrophizing what the future might bring, um, and to sit with it and learn from it and have practices or tools uh, in order to not have it be a hindrance anymore. Um, so um, it, I think it's powerful when you have a, a profession like ther professional therapists and counselors using these Buddhist principles, in particular mindfulness with regard to this number four item in terms of helping people uh, navigate these things that paralyze them, that decrease their ability to live in the present and that even have physio physiological and biological interactions in, in the human being in their brain and in their body um, with, with this hindrance or entanglement. It's very powerful. Yeah. The, uh, the podcast that my wife and I listened to this week, they were talking, she was talking, the, the podcast host was talking about how we are evolutionarily programmed 
to feel this anxiety when something in the world suddenly feels threat uh, as a threat to us. And if you go back, you know, a hundred thousand years or whatever it is and whatever we were back then, if a, if a, uh, giant cat came out of the, the the tree line and started heading towards us. Of course, you're going to be uh, fight, flight, or you know, fright. You know, all that kind of stuff's going to kick in. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn, uh, flee, and and those are all going to kick in, or at least one of them's going to. And this anxiety inside your body, it's you're you've been programmed for so long to feel that. Not just generations, but essentially back to when humans were just becoming humans. And one of the things that I read uh, preparing for this conversation and what she was pointing to are these breathing exercises. So in this thing about anxiousness, uh, the author here says the anecdote which will bring you into the present moment is to do a breathing or body scan meditation, or at the very least, the three breath calming technique. What she said in the podcast was when you stop and take deep breaths, calming breaths, you are manipulating your body into telling your brain that the threat is no longer present. And she talked about how those breaths tend to uh, put pressure on the vagus nerve and that that calms the body. It tells the rest of your uh, body systems that the threat is gone and you can begin to kind of calm down. And so it gets you out of your lizard brain and gets you back into that wisdom part of yourself that is much more developed, uh, much more evolved. um, And it gives you the ability to handle a pressing situation much more calmly. So for example, when, when an emergency is thrust on me, I work at a pawn shop as a pawnbroker. And when all of a sudden things get really tense and it's time to call the police, uh, I struggle to pick up the phone and dial a number. And it takes me an extra minute or so to get into my phone and find the contact and call the number. When, if I wasn't nervous or not tense, not feeling anxiety, it would happen within seven seconds. And the reality is a lot of us are that way. And if we just take those deep breaths, we can kind of get out of that um, that part of us that's just trying to deal with the threat and can get back into some portion of our wisdom mind and start making uh, rational, educated decisions again. Yeah. So anyway. If, and if we're really triggered into that limbic system, right, um, it's also good for people to know that it's going to take a while, even with the breathing. Um you know, that when that system gets triggered, so many hormones are released, things are coursing through your body, and the breath does really, really help. And, you know, we're removing ourselves from the situation. But on average, just know that it takes like, I think it's 23 and a half minutes to, to actually physiologically calm down from a really heightened state. Um, and so the key is, again, here, a lot of anxiety gets deepened because we don't want the anxiety. <laughs> This is this is kind of what happens. That's the bigger problem is that we don't want this to be happening to us. And so just relaxing into it, again, getting into just kind of a deep acceptance, a, a, an observation of what is happening. Oh, there it is. There's, you know, doing the body scan, like the podcast said, like, oh, my heart is really beating. I can see that. This is what's happening. Um, and allowing your system to come out and see that there is no tiger chasing you at the given moment and that all is well, but just kind of allowing it rather than trying to force it away, but just allowing and breathing and noticing and, and recognizing how much of what is going on is in our imagination. Our um, Anthony, our mutual friend, Sarah, who's a therapist, a very wise woman, Sarah Zabawa says, always says that um, 
anxiety is a lying liar who lies. <laughs> and I always think about that when I'm heightened. <laughs> anxiety is a lying liar who lies. So how is this situation playing out that way? What's the lie and what do I need to just calm down and relax into here? Love it. Love it. The, uh, the last one we've got here is doubt, a lack of conviction or trust. Um, the three of us all were part of a system that treated doubt in very unhealthy ways. Doubt here is also kind of seen as one of these hindrances. Um, I'll get to kind of what the article I read today suggested, but I want to get your thoughts first. What, uh, what do you think about the word doubt in terms of Eastern thought? in terms of maybe how we Westerners see it versus um, what it is being, what is being pointed at here. Any thoughts from you guys? Yeah. I mean, the meaning, the meaning that is being attributed to the word doubt is very different than, than uh, an engagement of doubt and faith and uncertainty and making choices without complete information, but based on hope with some supporting evidence without overwhelming discontent, Firming evidence to strive to be a better person and to do good things. That kind of faith, doubt, engagement is a different attribution of meaning than I think one of the hindrances that that uh, of these five hindrances or entanglements. Where where doubt here, you know, on Wikipedia it says it's a lack of conviction of trust or trust. It's it's uh, a lack. It's a diminished competence, I think. Um, it has to do maybe more with self-doubt rather than uh, other kinds of doubt. In any event, that that's my take on it. Uh, it's a different attribution of meaning than what I would have been used to using this word. Hmm. Yeah, it's, this one was pretty fraught for me, right? Because I've spent the last several years trying to make really good friends with doubt. <laughs> so to hear it as a hindrance again, I'm like, Dang. <laughs> I thought I had a handle on this whole doubt thing. And and I and I've noticed this. I did a lot of reading on this one too because I was having a lot of issues with it myself. Like um, but I, I noticed that a lot of people in their interpretation of this one go to the self-doubt thing. Like self don't don't have all of these doubts about yourself. Um, but some do leak into and it's it it's also pretty clear that you know different strains of Buddhism handle this differently, but there are strains of Buddhism that take this as don't doubt the Dharma. <laughs> don't doubt that this works, right? I've wrestled with this. I've wrestled with this in my own practice of saying, man, I've gotten to this point where this, this meditation is really hard. I, I, I thought it was supposed to make me calm and it's supposed to be easy and it's supposed to be, and it's hard. <laughs> and so the doubt does sink in, like, what am I doing? Why are all of my spiritual practices painful? <laughs> Why does it all have to be painful in my life? Um, and so I think this one is really delicate, the way we work with it, because um, I think there is truth that if we, um, I don't know, the way the Buddha said it somewhere was, if you're, if you're going to dig for water, it is better to dig one six-foot hole than six one-foot holes. You know, if you're going to to give up on something every time it gets kind of difficult or you start to have doubts about it, you're probably not going to go very far with any given discipline or practice um, mm. or, or ideal or anything. Um, so I think it can be a hindrance, but I think we have to. So we, I think it's a really hard one to piece apart sometimes from the other ones. Are, am I am I just avoiding the pain of it? Am I 
Am I just uncomfortable with this particular thing? I, have I have I given it enough of of a go to see if there are benefits for me through this kind of a practice? At the same time, I think too often, especially in um, very rigid, rigid religious, um, um, I don't know, pattern paradigms or whatever, we can we can tend to try to push through something that just isn't for us, and doubts can be absolutely essential to us finding our own path. I think that the the key in this is to be able to sit with the doubt for long enough to understand where it is coming from because you don't want to just throw away your doubts. They are they are essential to us being able to validate ourselves and trust ourselves and trust our own intuition which is vital for our well-being. We all have the path mapped within ourselves that we should be taking with our spiritual lives. And so um, to just push away doubt is, it can, I've seen it be terribly harmful to people. So it's this one I feel like for me is really delicate to work with. And it takes a lot of work and practice to sit in it and to see what it is trying to tell me and not try to, to get away from it but to give it its due without it running the show. Mm. So I, I have some ideas to add, but because you've triggered a few ideas. But Bill, why don't you share what you wanted to share? Oh, either way. So in the article I was reading, it said the most – the most sim- so first off, he pointed out the same thing you did, Jana, the author of this article, which is this idea that uh, you know trust the Dharma, uh, trust the leaders, trust the authorities, trust the wisdom teachers in front of you. So then you're you're essentially not able to question anything. And and I don't think that's the way this works. And and the author here suggests the most simple and effective way to clear up doubt is to ask questions, read books, surf the internet for answers. Obviously be careful as the net is full of misinformation. But in certain forms of traditional Buddhism, doubt is looked upon as a very unhelpful thing. You are told to believe your teachers and not question what they say. I, and this is the author again, and I agree. I find that extremely unhelpful. I have always asked lots of questions when I did not understand something, and it has always cleared away my doubt. Look at the doubt you carry around with you. Find out where the doubt is in your life. See how it is affecting your life and holding you back. Don't see your doubt as a negative thing. See it as a way for you to change. And, and I think it's when we have doubt about something we're doing in our life, and again, some people probably have persistent doubt and, and maybe they can just plug their ears for a moment. But when you have doubt creep up on you in a given moment in your life, maybe that's your intuition telling you that something may be a little off here and and you need more information before moving forward. It shouldn't paralyze you. I know sometimes when our home is trying to decide whether we go to, um, you know, again, the Indian restaurant or the Italian restaurant to grab dinner, we're all like, ah, I don't know what to do. And there's this doubt, you're worried that all choices are going to turn out bad, and hence you never, you're paralyzed, you never step forward. Um, I, I think what we ought to recognize is when we feel unclear about moving forward, maybe that's our inner intuition telling us to gather more information. Yeah, and then at a certain point when we've gathered the information, I think we also have to recognize that uh, we all carry a certain amount of FOMO of not making the best decision. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that, that is also a fantasy, that every decision you make just about in this life has some level of upside and downside, and it's okay to just move forward and just see. You know, we're not, yeah. we're not, most things we are not 
wrapped up into forever. You can experiment. You know, even with meditation, there are many different um, methods of meditation that have come through different traditions. And, you know, if this one doesn't work for you, try something else. Um, just maybe don't dabble. I've, Thomas McConkie has said this to me before, um, which is try a bunch of these things, but avoid just dabbling forever. Like find one that resonates and, and do stick with it and commit to it and just give it a shot. You can always mm. change course. Yeah. Mm, love it. All right. So for the listener, if you Google the four C's formula, capital C apostrophe S, uh, strategic coach Dan Sullivan, you'll be able to download a free ebook called the four C's formula. And the four C's are commitment is number one. Second is courage. Third is capability. And fourth is confidence. And and they're connected with arrows kind of in a clockwise circle. So when I listen to what you're saying, and when I think about a hindrance of the ability to be mindful in presence and this idea of doubt, what came to my mind is this. And so I'll explain it and then give a short example. So, so the path to growth requires a certain degree of commitment and stepping into the dark where we are going to attempt something, even though we haven't yet developed the capability for that thing. So we have a commitment to do something and, and to step into the dark, that, so the commitment's the first C, to step into the dark and, and to make movement towards doing that thing, it requires courage because we're going to do something that we haven't fully developed the capability of doing. Maybe we study it and we have models from others, but in the end, we got to step forward into the dark, right? Then as we exercise courage, what happens is we naturally put ourselves in a position where we increase our capability in a way that would not have happened had we not had commitment that led to exercising courage. As our capability increases, then we increase our, confident, our confidence in that thing. And that, that then increases our commitment in that thing. So, so I can personally, uh, the training that I've had, the education, like I can write essays. I, I write a lot. I can write essays. Um, but I've not written fiction and I've never written a memoir before. But I want to write one, right? So part, I have a commitment to write a memoir, even if it's only for me and that I extract from that so that uh, project things that I can put into a book that I would eventually uh, share with other people, I need to have a commitment that I'm going to go through this exercise. And so I'm going to go out and I'm going to hire a writing coach and I'm going to take a step into the dark and I'm going to vulnerably write things that are very different than writing an essay. And that would require exercising courage to step into that, to hire someone, to, to get feedback, to be very vulnerable in, in what I'm writing. And as I do that, that increases my capability uh, with practice, which increases my confidence, which increases my commitment. If I tie that into this idea of doubt being a hindrance of mindfulness and of enlightenment, it's this self-doubt where we're we're, we're afraid to, we're fearful of making a commitment. We're fearful of moving forward. We're fearful of stepping into the dark. We're feel fearful of, of taking risks and being vulnerable and being subject to shame because of that doubt. 
And, and without learning of the origin of the doubt, without getting curious about it, and then with engaging with it, and then making that next step to exercise this courage and, and to step into the dark with commitments, then we can't get through this. Anyway, that's what connected to me. And uh, if you guys decide to read that uh, free ebook, um, I'm interested in your feedback on it. Love it. It, there are echoes for me in that Anthony of um, it was a, one of their earliest podcasts that Brene Brown did on her Unlocking Us podcast was called the FFTs and she it stands for the effing first times love it <laughs> and, and she was it was um, it was a beautiful thing talking about the vulnerability of doing exactly what you're suggesting and stepping into these courageous moments knowing that we don't have it all figured out. And what I find really beautiful about that is that she was willing to put that forward as one of her first podcasts and talk about how hard that is, how hard that was for her to do it. And this is Brene. She's already successful. Like, and it was, it was really scary for her to do something that was not in her wheelhouse that she'd not done before. And there's just something about her getting mindful about that and noticing it and noticing what the fears were and naming them to herself that helped her do what you're suggesting and move through that and find that courage, right? Because when we try to puff up or to say, well, I, I can do this. I'm just going to psych myself up and I've got this, you know, um, I don't think it works as well. And we run into more problems down the road rather than just getting vulnerable and real. And to me, that's so much of what all of this, um, this podcast series we're doing here is about. One of the messages I keep coming back to for my own life is like, how can I just get more real with what is happening here? How can I clear my own stories and get into reality? And, and the freedom that comes from that stance is, can be a beautiful thing. Amen to that. Love it. There we are. There's the five hindrances, folks. So if you're listening, um, those are the things that both get in the way of you being present and progressing on that path of awakenedness. And they're also the the gateways into getting awakened as well. Uh, Anthony Miller, Janice Bangler, thank you so much for another great conversation. Um, I just think these are so important uh, for people to kind of, again, I, I think there's better people than me explaining it. Maybe not better than you guys, but better than me explaining it. But the reality is that we're all listening to various things. And I th- I'm hopeful that these conversations will prompt people to go find this information other places. Um, I did put Anthony in, I'll put in the show notes that uh, f- the, the C's book that you pointed us to, there is the link there in the, the show notes to awesome. get your free copy. I put the uh, link to the podcast, Taming the Whoosh and, and Whoosh. This lady uses it the same way I use disturbance. I don't know if either one of you listened to that at any, at, at, if you guys have listened to that at all. I, I did. I, I thought the information was really great. Uh, the, the underlying topic of the podcast was a little bit stretching, I think, for some people. But I think yeah, the content, I, I hear you. It's going to scare the, people. But I think man. the content was helpful. Know, it, but it's the best relationship podcast I'd ever heard was that episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm grateful that my friend shared it with me. Yeah. Um, awesome. Anything else from you guys, closing thoughts or anything else? And we'll just move on. Love it. Nope, I love it. I just think um, this little this little quote from Jack um, about the hindrances. He says these forces make for a good and wise heart when we see them for what they are. Ooh, and yeah. I, I just loved that. I had to write it down and keep it um, because I think again, my my tendency is to say these things are all bad. Get them. Get rid of them. My perfectionism. Get rid of them. I must stamp them out. But it's really in working with them and the- and and. In, 
bracing them, you know? They and are our teachers. They are our teachers. We've just got to let them be. The fear means we're about to grow, right? I love it. You're right. Amen to that. Well, guys, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you in the next conversation. All right. Thank you.